Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the show, Matt Siddle, Portfolio Manager of Fidelity Europe Fund, joins us to discuss the latest market movements in Europe and where he is finding opportunities in 2023. Matt provides an outlook on the overall European economy and how he's positioning his fund based on the latest movements. He says one key item he's keeping an eye on is natural gas. He says the tailwinds and issues of 2022 are gone as governments are now sourcing gas from other places. However, even with the rise in optimism, he says the economic environment in Europe will be tough in the next 6 to 12 months. Matt says the mood in Europe has improved, but data indicates the economy is starting to slow. Data, job numbers and temporary staffing roles have contributed to the slowing economy. For him, he's optimistic on the medium outlook for the next three years, but the next six months will be tough. For opportunities right now, Matt is focusing on businesses that are less volatile, less cyclically at risk, and have cheap valuations. This podcast was recorded on January 13th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement recommendation or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So let's start off with an, an outlook for 2023. Um, we're sitting here just a couple of weeks into the year. What are you seeing so far and, and what do you expect uh, from the European market in the coming months? You know, one of the biggest changes since uh, since we last spoke and, um, you know, one of the key items for 2023 is what's happening with gas prices, natural gas prices in, in Europe and the impact that had and, and the fear that people had a few months ago about the, the lack of gas. And, and that situation has really improved very significantly um, over the last few months. Firstly, the European governments and utilities have done a very good job at sourcing gas from other places other than Russia, such that the, uh, the, the sort of storage levels in Europe are actually well above usual seasonal levels. You know, storage is still nearly full, even though we're kind of in the middle of January. At, at the time, we had to pay up. And, and you'll have seen that natural gas prices were extremely high uh, last year in Europe, you know, up to 10 times what the historic normal level was. But since the, uh, since the uh, tanks got full uh, and since we've started going into winter and, and the levels are higher than usual, you know, we've seen a very dramatic drop in gas prices, you know, up to 80 um, percent. And while that doesn't help Europe this year, because bills are based on the gas that we bought and put in the tanks last year. It will be very beneficial for, for next year, and, and it should mean that there's you know, less risk of higher prices and, and the potential even for lower natural gas prices, lower energy bills, and more money in consumers' pockets next year. So you know, that, that's a, a clear improvement. Firstly, the tail risk, I think, has disappeared. 
there's enough gas to get through winter, that tail risk has gone. And secondly, you know, the, the benefit for the economic environment, okay, not this year, this year is still going to be tough, and, and maybe we can talk a bit more about that. But next year, there's going to be a bit more cash in people's pockets as a result of these falling prices. Yeah, let's talk a bit about sort of the economic picture there. Obviously, on this side of the border, people are worried about recession. Is it coming and in continued interest rate hikes and all those sorts of things? What's the mood in Europe around a recession? What are you seeing from the economy right now? Yeah, so I think there's two things. Uh, the, the mood, the mood has actually uh, improved, but that's mainly because of that fear that we had four months ago uh, and the fact that, that that situation, as I said, has improved significantly. So the mood is actually better and more optimistic. However, the actual data and the, uh, the, the uh, environment is slowing. You know, we've gone from a mood of, oh, God, there could be this horrific situation to, oh, at least we don't have a horrific situation. But, but when you look at the data and you look at the jobs uh, and you look at some of the temporary staffing firms, et cetera, you are starting to see that slowdown come through in terms of weakening numbers. I am positive on the medium term outlook. And, and, you know, we haven't touched on valuations, but valuations for a lot of companies still are very cheap. So, you know, I've, I've got a, a very clear, positive three year view. But I, I do want to highlight that it's not like all of the problems have disappeared. You know, the economy is still slowing and, and, and there is still a tough period to get through over the next six, 12 months. I want to definitely talk about valuations and, and that view that you have. But uh, when you say, you know, when we talk about recession, we talk about Europe, I think a lot of people think back to 2008. And there were parts of Europe that really got into a lot of trouble, taking on too much debt and all sorts of things. Should people, you know, are, are we going to see a repeat of that? Or is this situation different than maybe it's been in the past or over the last uh, decade or so? Yeah, look, I mean, why why did that happen? That that really happened because people started to fear about the banking system, and and secondly, fears about you know sovereign debt in in Italy after after what obviously happened in Greece. And you know, Greece is a small economy. Italy is not a small economy. If if Italy goes wrong, then then there is a problem. So so you know, those were the fears in terms of the banking system. The capital levels of the banks are dramatically better than where they were ten years ago. So you know, the the probability of a, an individual bank running into difficulties you know, because of loan losses or, or, or a normal economic cycle is, is very low. But, but they're still cyclical businesses. You know, profits will still fall if we have a recession and, and interest rates go down and margins get squeezed. So it's not like they're immune, but their, their capital levels mean that they're much more able to cope with what would be a, a you know, a, a normal recessionary environment. Now, so the, the, the tail risk potentially would be what happens if, if Italy starts to, to run into difficulties. And, and there has been two sort of positive uh, steps as well. Firstly, within the Italian system, the governments have focused on uh, improving the, um, the, the deficit situation and, and where there were fears that, you know, if, if one of the more right wing or left wing parties got into power, well, what would they do? And would they want to leave the euro? And well, one of those parties actually got elected last year, but, but their policies are very pro-NATO, very pro-EU. Once they've come into power, you know, they're, 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 they're acting in a very responsible way. 
both in terms of their uh, their commitments to NATO EU, but also in terms of the um, the budget situation, and and they are trying to uh, to manage the situation. So. Uh, the second positive on the Italian front is what the ECB has done. You know, uh, the, the, the problem basically escalated last time because the central bank wasn't able to do anything. And then, you know, it basically ended. People remember when Mario Draghi, the, the president of the ECB, came out and said, we'll do whatever it takes. And, and if you look, that was kind of the day that spreads dropped and everything got better after that speech. And since that point, the ECB's had 10 years to think about whatever it takes might be. And, and they, they've come up with um, specific plans around, you know, um, government bond buying to stop a spiral if the Italian government comes in, if the sovereign, if the bond comes under attack, the ECB could go out and buy to stop the spreads blowing out, which was what the, the problem was in 2011. So in, in both situations, I'm not saying that they're immune to a recession and that there won't be worries, okay? There probably will be, but the situation's dramatically better than it was 10, 15 years ago, both in the GFC and the Eurozone crisis. What about interest rates? I mean, you know, in Europe and parts of Europe, there was negative rates, and uh, which, which was sort of a, a, a big deal over the last little while. How have rates increased and, and where could they go from here in, in Europe? Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, you point out rates went to minus 0.5% in, in Europe and spent several years negative. And that is pretty horrific for the profitability of the banking sector. You know, if, if your business model is taking in deposits from people and then lending money out and making a profit, it's very difficult to lend when bond yields are at minus 0.5%. Because, you know, you can't, how do you make a profit over the deposit, right? It, it's really, really difficult. So, uh, um, you know, bank lending was weak. Margins were under pressure for a decade. What you've seen is with this bout of inflation, you know, driven mainly by the war in Europe, um, labor markets are tight, but they're less tight than they are in the US or the UK. So there is some wage pressure, but it's less than it is in the US or the UK. Uh, so the inflation is more um, being driven by goods and commodities and, and the war. But that still led to, you know, double digit inflation in places. And uh, the ECBs had to raise rates in order to uh, to address inflation. And with unemployment at 30 or 40 year lows, it's felt that it's able to do that. So rates are up about 250 basis points so far. Guidance is that they'll go another 150 or so higher from here. So in total, you're looking at a rate hike cycle of between sort of 350, 400 basis points, which is actually not that different to what the Fed's doing. The Fed is probably 400 to 500 if, if you look at market expectations. And, and that makes a dramatic difference for the profitability of the European banking system. Obviously, if there's a recession, loan losses, but, but the margins, the net interest margins are, are helped by those rate hikes. And, and that's clearly positive. And, and one of the reasons why earnings in Europe are actually growing faster than they are in the US, earnings are outperforming in Europe versus the US over the last 12 months. So that's, uh, that's kind of the situation. Rate hikes have happened. From a lower level, but you know, not far from a similar quantum to the U.S. and uh, and, and the U.K. And so, so just on a you know a percentage basis, like wh where are they at today? So they were you said they were so, yeah. De deposit rates at two percent, having been minus fifty bits. Guidance is it gets to three and a half. 
is there any, you know, because of coming off such a low rate, is there is there a threat that they could overshoot? I mean, that's what people are thinking about here. But we're, you know, our rates are already close, getting closer to kind of four and a half percent, five percent. You're, st- you know, comparatively, you're it's still low in Europe. Yeah, that, that's true. It is comparatively low. But I think when you're looking at an overshoot, you need to look at the delta. You need to look at the change rather than just the level. Because if an economy gets used to borrowing at, at minus 0.5% or at zero, you know, by the time you've added on a margin, you know, if, 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 you know, if companies are used to borrowing and effectively borrowing without having to pay any interest, and, and people can get mortgages and basically borrow and pay maybe nothing or maybe 0.2% interest for your mortgage. That affects your spending decisions and it affects house prices. So house prices in Europe have, have actually done really well over the last decade, um, particularly in, in Nor- you know, the Nordic countries, Scandinavia, Germany, et cetera. So, so it is the delta as well that matters. And you are seeing house prices slow in Europe, even though rates are only at two, because it's got up to 150 bips, that, that's still having an impact on house prices. It's still having an effect on you know, um, household budgets, et cetera, because you got used to much lower rates if you're a borrower. So you do need to look at the change as well as the level. So um, the, there is the risk of overshoot. Um, and uh, in, in, you know, in my view, we, we haven't got to that yet. But if they go all the way to 350 bit, if they, they take it up another 150 bits on top, then, you know, given that the economy is starting to see slowdown and, and so on, that that's the step that could be an overshoot if they do it. Now, maybe they change their mind and say, well, actually, the data's you know, not quite as inflationary. We don't need to put rates up quite as much. But but if they, you know, in my view, if they do do another 150 bits, that is a potential overshoot. And, and, and you know, I said there's potential risks over the next 12 months for the economy. And, and that, to my mind, would be a potential risk for the economy. What about the markets themselves? Now, you mentioned valuations look attractive. Um, how attractive do they look? And, and what does that mean kind of for the broader European markets? Yeah, look, so valuations have never been cheaper compared to the U.S., now, the U.S. is not a cheap stock market, as I'm sure most people are, are aware. But, uh, you know, if you were to look at the European market, there's quite a big split. Um, you know, there's a big, big gap between those sort of quality growth companies where valuations are, are still very high compared to history and, and some of the more value um, uh, companies where actually valuations are very close to historical troughs. You know, but the market as a whole is not expensive. Uh, the market as a whole is very cheap compared to the US. But if you break the market as a whole down, it breaks into two parts. One part which is actually still quite expensive and one part which is actually very, very cheap. So, so I find the better opportunities in the very, very cheap businesses. But, uh, but you know, given my comments around the, the potential slowdown and, and the potential near-term risks, you know, what I'm really looking for are very, very cheap businesses where where they can stand up to uh, an economic slowdown and, uh, and and the potential, you know, the potential headwinds over the next 12 months. So you've got a very strong three-year story while trying trying to manage the risks over the next 12 months. So what are those two, is it the expensive and, and cheap sides of the market? What are those two different sides? Yeah, so I mean, look, you, you've got within the, some of the quality companies, you would have luxury goods companies. So, you know, the LVMHs of this world are, are st- still on well over 20 times 
close to peak valuations. You know, some of the semiconductor names for in Europe are still very expensive. So ASMLs are very expensive. There's, there's some individual stocks in each sector, to be honest. You know, it's not like there's just one area. You know, you could look at some stocks in consumer staples are really expensive. Equally, some stocks are at all-time lows on valuations within that sector. You know, within uh, you know, pretty much every sector, there are some stocks which are really expensive and some stocks which actually are really, really cheap. So it's that sort of stock picking opportunity that I, I see within sectors that, that I find is uh, is really interesting because you you can find good businesses which actually are you know it not sometimes not only at ten year low valuations but but you know close to all time low valuations. You know, as we've been talking about Europe's Europe, there's been times where Europe's been in favor and out of favor. But why now are valuations? So cheap, cheaper than maybe they've been historically. What, what, what's happening now that that is making yeah. that happen? So, yeah, Europe has always traded at a discount to the US, you know, pretty much always. The, the short periods of time, maybe where it's been a, a bit of a premium. But, but the long term norm is, you know, maybe it's 10, maybe it's 20 percent cheaper. You know, it's close to 40 percent cheaper. So, you know, it's, it's, it is an unusually um, wide gap. So that's one thing. The second thing is that, you know, the earnings outperformance of the U.S. was mainly driven by the, um, the, the earnings growth driven out of the big tech companies. And I'm sure most people are aware that you know, not all of these companies actually are growing earnings anymore. So, you know, the European earnings are actually starting to out, outpace U.S. earnings over the last 12 months. So, you know, that, that picture of weaker earnings growth is no longer necessarily the case. And, you know, if, if you are um, if you are a, a value investor, if you if you want to play a value rebound, you are much, much better doing it in, in Europe. You know, if you look historically, there's a very strong correlation with Europe outperforming the US when it's a more value driven market and the US outperforming Europe when it's a more growth driven market. You know, it's one of the reasons why the US has so far outperformed Europe over the last 15 years. But if you go back to that period from 2000 to 2007, when it was a big value market, you know, Europe significantly outperformed the US. And, and, you know, you can even look on shorter time periods on, on sort of the, the pullbacks uh, and the correlations. And it's a very, very tight correlation. So, you know, if you if you want to play value, you know, Europe is a much better market to play it in. And there's a lot of companies in Europe which are very, very cheap. Plus, on top of that, you know, the long term earnings story, which the US had faster earnings growth, actually, that's not been the case over the last 12 months. So so that that advantage has kind of gone potentially. Yeah, you mentioned this sort of a three-year, you know, sort of outlook that you have here. Talk a bit more about that. Why why does the market look more attractive kind of on a on a three-year time period? Yeah, the the I, I think about things on on multiple time periods. I, I think about what the medium term expected return is, and then I think about the short-term upside and short-term risks. And the medium-term story looks really attractive. You've got a, a cheap valuations. In Europe, plenty of businesses where you've got, you know, mid-teens returns to sort of normalized valuations. And you could do that in businesses with, with you know, perfectly stable, perfectly good fundamentals. You don't have to buy really risky stuff to, to, to find that. So, so the mid-term story is really, really attractive. However, when I look at the balance of short-term risks and short-term opportunities, you know, a, a lot of the cyclicals have just had a huge rally. 
because people have uh, have have sort of breathed that sigh of relief that the, the gas situation didn't turn nasty this winter. So a lot of European cyclicals have just had a big rally and the economy is starting to slow down. And that combination of cyclicals having had a big rally and an economy that's slowing down, you know, that's not necessarily the most um, comforting picture. So, so to me, the balance of risks on, on the cyclicals is a bit more to the downside. So, you know, would I shoot all of my bullets right now? I can see a, a really strong three-year picture, but would I shoot all of my bullets right now? No, I, I wouldn't. I'd, I'd wait personally and have some bullets spare because as the economy, in my view, continues to weaken, you know, but there are lag effects to monetary policy. Money, you don't raise rates and suddenly the economy slows, right? You raise rates and then slowly the economy slows. And if you've just raised rates the fastest that you've ever raised rates, both in the US and in Europe, and you've been doing it for 12 months, it doesn't suddenly, you know, stop slowing, right? There's, there's a lag impact to this as, as we go through 2023. So, you know, my view is that there are some really interesting opportunities now in businesses which are less volatile, less cyclically at risk, but valuations are really cheap. And then in the cyclical part, I suspect that there'll be better opportunities in three, six, 12 months time. And that's why, in my view, there's a really strong three-year story, but I'd want to be buying some now and buying you know, opportune points over the next 12 months. Any outlook for European or UK financials? Uh, as I said, rates have gone up. That's really helpful for the margins of financials. So in the very short term, I expect earnings surprises on the upside. I think most people know where rates are and, and can probably guess similar. So, uh, you know, I, I, I suspect that most people on the buy side are expecting sell side estimates are, are a bit behind the curve, as it were, uh, and to see earnings upgrades. The valuations are mixed. Some stocks are really cheap. Some stocks are average valuation. There's, there's not many financials which are really expensive. There's a few. but uh, and, and where I re really see the opportunity is on the UK, where people after the budget, uh, I'm sure you, you even heard of it in, uh, in Canada, right? The, the Omnish Shambles budget, which, uh, which led to sterling collapsing and interest rates blowing up. And uh, um, you know, basically everybody took a big knife to their earnings estimates on the UK banks, started to predict a recession. So, so people are much more cautious on the UK banks. The valuations are much cheaper. Uh, and, and yet they are benefiting from those higher interest rates feeding through into the, the margins. So that's where I see the best opportunity for best balance of risk and reward because they are benefiting from rising rates but people have been much more cautious on the earnings estimates because they think there's going to be a bigger recession in europe i think there's some upside uh, in the short term but if interest rates start to come down which i think is a possibility um you know we, we can maybe talk about what we're, we're seeing in terms of incremental inflation but you know i i see the, the potential for interest rate rises in the very short term but equally rate cuts as the things slow down later this year and those rate cuts and the slowing economy won't necessarily be brilliant for the expectations on on all financials so i'm selective in european financials really like some of the UK financials where expectations are lower and valuations cheap. And then there's particularly, I find more insurance companies which are a bit less sensitive to the slowdown in the economy, but benefit from the rates as well. 
on the opportunities when you, I mean, we're talking about Europe as sort of a one, one place in the, but, but it isn't, there's a lot of different countries with a lot of different opportunities. So when you look at, you know, the components of, uh, of Europe, where do you find attractive opportunities? Just geographically, I find the most opportunities in the UK at the moment, broadly for the reasons that I was, uh, I was outlining. Basically, when the, the, that budget and when the sterling collapse happened, everybody turned really negative and started predicting really bad things for the UK economy. So expectations and earnings estimates are much lower generally. They price in a bigger slowdown than they do for the rest of Europe. And valuations, if anything, are actually cheaper in the UK than they are the rest of Europe on estimates which are more cautious. So you know, I see more upside there. You know, obviously that government uh, resigned and got replaced and the policies of the new government have brought the situation under control. And, um, you know, you've got uh, you've, you've got a, a much healthier balance of, you know, moderate rate rises, a, a more sensible fiscal policy, one of the smaller deficits versus all of European countries. You know, but the, the, the government deficit in the UK is expected to be one of the smallest out of all European countries, even despite all of these fears that we had with the previous set of policies. So that's where I find the most opportunities uh, in Europe at the moment. In terms of, you know, choosing companies, how do you how do you make sure that you get a good business that's cheap without falling into a value trap or without, you know, you said within sectors, there's some dis- lots of disparity there. So, so what makes a good company in, in your view? What makes a good company is a, a business that's got a strong competitive position and can earn attractive returns on capital and then reinvest those returns, uh, reinvest that money at, at attractive returns. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, I think, the holy grail that most investors are looking for. Uh, the, the balance then becomes, well, when are they good to buy? And obviously, this is where the valuation part comes in. And, and you know, sometimes companies get affected by short term worries. So, you, you know, you know, people are worried by a short term slowdown or, or a piece of bad news. And, and what your job as an analyst or, or an investor is, really is to identify which of these um, worries are short-term problems that the company, the economy will recover from, and therefore there's attractive medium-term investment returns, and which of these problems aren't necessarily short-term and and actually could cause a big problem for the business, could cause a big problem for the economy, and maybe the balance sheet's in the wrong place or or whatever it is, and, and you're at real risk. And that's where having a big research team comes in really useful and why working at a place like Fidelity is great, because we've got the resources to go out and, and do all of that work and try and work out which of these problems are big structural problems versus which of these problems are things which people will have forgotten about in six or 12 months time. So that's uh, that's what we're trying to do. You know, that's why, you know, working here and, and having access to the research team is, is so helpful. That's you know, that, that's our, our raison d'etre and, uh, and, and what we do every day. Why should Canadian advisors and investors be, be interested in, in Europe? What, what are the benefits of the European market for, for Canadians who are, uh, you know, investing in a diversified portfolio? If, if you want to be a growth investor, there are more growth companies in the U.S., and uh, the U.S. is a growthier market. So I, I'm not going to argue that. But if you think that value has a place in the portfolio, firstly, valuations in Europe are much, much cheaper. Secondly, 
Earnings are actually starting to grow faster in Europe than they are in the US. Thirdly, I talked about the problem with the gas prices and how that took a lot of money out of people's pockets this year. But as I said, gas prices have fallen 80% since uh, last, uh, last, the end of last year. When we come to refill storage things for next year, winter, it's, it's likely to be at much, much cheaper prices. So there's going to be much more money put back into people's pockets in a way that it isn't necessarily in the US because you know, natural gas prices, your energy bills didn't go up tenfold. You know, it wasn't such a big drag and therefore it won't be such a big benefit. So, you know, but, but, but there's valuations, there's the way that Europe acts as a, a real, you know, pro-value market as a whole. Plus, while I think this year is difficult, there's more recovery potential coming out of this recession in Europe than there is in the US, in my view. Perfect. Um, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for those insights and looking forward to see how the, how the year shapes up. Great. Thanks very much, Brian. Good to speak to you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.